Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine Porter, Toronto Bureau Chief of the New York Times, a co-author of a really riveting uh, piece about Haiti. It is called The Ransom, The Root of Haiti's Misery, Reparations to Enslavers. You can read it in the New York Times. Catherine co-authored the piece with Constant Mayo, Matt Apuzo, and Salam Gabrekadin. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm riveted by your piece because I'm riveted by the story of Haiti. Haiti is the first place in the entire world where enslaved people uh, had a successful slave revolt and threw off their enslavers, their French enslavers. Uh, Haiti, when it was still a French colony, was known as uh, Saint-Domingue. And, you know, Catherine, just so we can put some of your reporting in context, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about what French slavery uh, was like? The system in Saint-Domingue, this little nub of, an, of the island of Hispaniola, is considered by many historians as the most brutal form of slavery. It was, so, you know, 90% of the colony were enslaved people. If you just think about the difference, you know, if you have a population of a small place that is 90% enslaved, to keep those people under thumb, slave masters used some pretty brutal techniques of basically hard labor, low malnutrition, and fear. There's lots of stories of enslaved people being executed publicly, both on their plantations, but in public squares in Saint-Domingue. And the thing that was is the most, I mean, there's so much that was grotesque about it, but this was considered the richest colony in the world. Um, and it produced, it was the biggest producer of sugar and coffee, which was kind of like the oil of the era for Europe, for all of Europe, not just for France, because France then re-exported it out to Germany and Amsterdam and, um, and other parts of, of Europe at the time. And it made many French colonists incredibly wealthy. When you look at the cities of Bordeaux um, and um, other, you know, uh, Nantes, um, those cities were built on the slave trade. And the number one place that kidnapped Africans were being sent was to Saint-Domingue. So it's really amazing to think of this place that was considered, they called it the, you know, the jewel of the Antilles, um, but it was a jewel only for a small percentage of white French slave owners, mostly white. There were some, some free blacks, but mostly white. Um, and for the vast majority of the population, it was utter hell. It was a, a jewel for some, but as you point out, no enslavement uh, is, can be uh, considered anything but brutal. But some of the tortures in which the French engaged uh, were particularly brutal. I mean, you write about uh, circumstances where they actually put gunpowder in the bodies of enslaved people and then blew them up for all to see. Um, I, I, I think it's important to point that out because sometimes in the United States, for instance, when we're confronting our own history, uh, we think it's a bit singular and sometimes forget that these barbarities were taking place around the world. But unlike a lot of the enslaved people around the world, the Haitians were able uh, to foment and execute a successful slave revolution in 1791. Uh, right. And their revolutionary leader uh, was Toussaint Louverture. Um, what happened to him, to Toussaint oh. Louverture? 
Toussaint Louverture was one of the leaders at, uh, of the revolution. He wasn't the only one, but as the revolution went on and on, he became the primary leader. Um, he was essentially kidnapped um, by Napoleon's forces. So what happened was there was this huge revolution started um, by enslaved people. They won. Within a couple years, the French commissioners, like the leaders of the government, announced that any enslaved person that fought on their side against, you know, in this internecine battle that was still going on would become free. And then soon after, the revolutionary government in France announced the end of slavery. Every every enslaved person would be a French citizen. So it was a really huge precedent that it had set. But later, Napoleon came to power. He overturned that decision regarding slavery. He reintroduced it to the other colonies and he sent his brother-in-law and a huge battalion of troops to Saint-Domingue to basically crush this revolution and crush all the leaders, including Toussaint Louverture. So there was a sneaky meeting set up where Toussaint was supposed to be meeting with other, uh, with French um, soldiers. Instead, they kidnapped him. They took him and his family. They took him back to France. They locked him up in this prison um, in the French mountains, uh, the French Alps, where he died without ever having uh, a hearing of any sort. And in fact, like many years later, like his death is still marked as a, uh, as an important date um, on the calendar in Haiti. Um, and it was on the anniversary, the 200th anniversary of his revolution, 200 years later, that um, uh, President Aristide launched a campaign um, of restitution. Just so my viewers and listeners have a good sense of how important Louverture is uh, in Haitian history, his line is actually, he has a line that's become a standard in uh, Haitian history books. And the line was, and this is after his kidnapping, in overthrowing me, you have done no more than cut down the trunk of the tree of Black Liberty in Saint-Domingue. It will spring back from the roots, for they are numerous and deep. So let, let's just do a quick recap. 1791, uh, the Haitians throw off their enslavers. The French Revolutionary government says, okay, no more slavery. Napoleon comes to power and says, nope, not today. I'm taking the colony back. He sends troops uh, to Haiti, led by his brother-in-law, to recapture the island, and he loses. Uh, Catherine, he lost about, what, 50,000 troops when he tried to retake the island. Isn't that about right? Yeah. I mean, uh, I troops, Marines. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, a mixture of both soldiers, Marines and, and you know, uh, militia fighters. So that's the, that's a figure that um, historian Philippe Girard, who's done all the most, you know, that we, we relied on um, sites. And yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing to think, right? You have these enslaved people that did not have the firepower, you know, <laughs> like basically just the 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 army gear you need, and they beat the the most powerful European force, you know, and the most and, and Napoleon. It's not it's a it's an amazing story, and they declared the first black country, free black country of the Americas, and instead of being celebrated, they became a pariah because they were, you know, Haiti was the small side of an island, you know, um, in a 
Caribbean Sea where slavery was still the rule and you had not just the British um, islands around it and the Spanish islands that were enslaved, but you had the United States of America um, where senators took to the floor of Congress to say there is no way we are going to um, recognize this country. It is a pestilence, you know, because they were frightened that um, it would serve as an example for the enslaved people there. Um, to they take were frightened place. indeed. I mean, here was uh, the United States who was still subjugating and enslaving African-Americans. And then just across the way, they see these Black people who threw off their enslavers in a successful revolt. Uh, your reporting actually points out uh, some really, I would say, uh, instructive quotes from American political leadership about the state of this free Black country. Uh, Senator Thomas Benton of Missouri said to his fellow lawmakers in Congress, <laughs> this is a quote, the peace of 11 states in this union will not permit the fruits of a successful Negro insurrection. It will not permit black count it will not permit black consuls and ambassadors to establish themselves in our cities and to parade through our country. Senator uh, John Berrien from Georgia, he said that recognizing Haiti would, quote, introduce a moral contagion that would make even the most horrifying pestilence seem light and insignificant. Those are quotes uh, that I pulled from your great piece. So here we have a country that engaged in a successful revolution to become free. And the rest of the world is like, we don't like your freedom. Uh, and we are essentially not going to trade with you uh, and make you a pariah state. So then that leads us to the subject of your piece, the ransom. Because now you've got a free Haiti, you've got French colonists who've been deprived of what they see as, not what they see, I mean, it was true. It was a very profitable, a colony, as you pointed out, the commodities that were coming from Haiti were feeding all of Europe. Uh, the French colonists are not happy about this and they weren't ready to let it go. 1825, the King of France makes another play and this is really the subject of your piece. What happens in 1825? In 1825, there's a new king in France, uh, King Charles X, and he sends his emissary, the Baron of Macau, who was a big diplomat and, and Navy guy, um, in with a battalion of warships um, to Haiti. Uh, the um, Baron shows up. He says, basically, he says to the president of the time of Haiti, you got two options. Either you pay up, give us reparations, or we're going to declare war on you. And I'm not a negotiator. I'm not here to negotiate. I've, I've got this like thing all signed already from the king. These are your two options. So pick one. And after three days, to the horror of some of his uh, of some of his ministers, Boyer agrees. It's still uh, a bone of contention among historians, particularly and Haitians, as to why he did. But you can see that he basically had a gun to his head. You either do this or we declare war. And so he agreed. And it was for this astronomical amount. Uh, it was for at the time it was for 150 million francs, which there was no way that the Haitian government could pay. In fact, like you know, just the first sliver of that 
was six times what they made in a year in their coffers. There's just no way that they were going to be able to pay. And the French government knew that and had given the emissary uh, a secondary mission, which was to make sure the Haitian government took out a loan from Parisian banks to, to start paying this. Because in that way, it figured it was starting to see that there was these international loans happening in, in, in London, and it wanted to set up its own banking system in Paris that would do the same thing. And that's what happened. The Haitian president sent emissary, his own ministers back to France and they signed out a disastrous loan. Um, and this is what became known um, in Haiti and among historians as the double debt. There was the first debt that they agreed to pay this 150 million francs that would go back to their former enslavers, literally to the families of colonists that had owned them and the land that they now they they now considered Haiti, and the second bit would go to the bankers um, and to the bondholders of that first loan to pay the first the first tranche the first payment of this 150 million francs. So you know, as soon as really in its infancy infancy, Haiti was hamstrung already. And what we found looking, you know, we, we, we wanted to see exactly how much Haiti paid and how long it took them to pay and what the repercussions of this independence debt and double debt were. Um, and what we found is that, you know, over some years, over the next decades, the, Haitian, the, the payments were more than 40% of the listed budget of the state. So at times when you know, into the 1860s at times when places like Costa Rica were electrifying its capital city and New York was building aqueducts and France was similarly, and France and England were similarly funding schools and funding big public work projects. Haiti was continuing to pay its former masters uh, um, and its former and, and these these bondholders of this um, loan for you know for basically its freedom and it didn't didn't have the opportunity to start building you know a state. Let's first talk about just the demand for reparations in and of itself. The reparations conversation uh, in the United States, as I'm sure you know, tends to center around. What do you do, if anything, for the descendants of enslaved people whose ancestors uh, were deprived of the value of their labor and that labor was gone to enrich other coffers? Uh, you know, that conversation meets a lot of resistance. You know, people aren't open to the idea, many people, I should say, aren't open to the idea of making things right because they're like, how do you tell? You know, they're all sorts of problems um, that are put out there. But interestingly, <laughs> when this nation of enslaved people threw off their enslavers and became free, folks came up with a number. Charles X said, you know what, you're gonna pay us this money or we're gonna go back to war. The country had no money. And then they said, not only are you gonna pay us the money, you're gonna borrow money from French banks to pay us the money. So. After you, you're, gonna, you're not only going to incur this principal debt, you're then going to be paying interest uh, to French banks so you can pay the debt. Uh, Catherine, the sense I got from uh, your reporting is that the French government has been very coy 
um, and that's putting it mildly, about these payments and about the amount of reparations uh, that they demanded uh, from uh, the freed, formerly enslaved Haitians. What was that number? What were, what were you able to call from all the various uh, documents and the research that you did about what that number was in the first instance? We can talk later about what the economic impact of it was, but just in the first instance, how much did the Haitians have to pay? What happened was Haiti defaulted, like after that first payment through the banks. And a number of years later, another battalion of French warships came back and they went into negotiations and they reduced the independence debt down to 90 million. But what my colleague um, in Paris, uh, his name is Constant Mehout, what he did was go to the archives um, of various archives and basically collect the payments. Um, uh, the payments to the, you know, of the first, the independence debt to the to families, and then also the payments to the banks and looking also at late fees, interest fees, like, as you know, anytime you take out a loan from a bank, like, it's quite crafty, and you're always ending up paying interest and late fees. So, um, and when we added it all together, we found that, you know, if you added it up, it became... $560 million is what, what Haiti paid. Now, the thing that's most interesting about that number is that that's just like, uh, that's really not what the opportunity cost was. Um, that's just the direct payments. So then we worked with international economists and financial historians to sort of look at like, what would that money have been if it had stayed in Haiti? Because the thing is that's so interesting about this debt is it's not like um, an international um, development loan that you think about today that goes towards building schools, or at least on paper, goes towards building schools, goes towards often, you know, develop like developing a country. This was just a drain. This was just a tap in the side of Haiti flowing for nothing in return. So if that money had stayed in Haiti and the and and the you know, gone into the pockets of people. Um, and grown at the same fairly depressed rate of the Haitian economy, it would add up to $21 billion today. But interestingly, some economists said, well, you know, really, that's not what happens. Like the money never just stays in people's pockets. It gets invested privately. You send your kids to school. You pay your hospital bills. You maybe set up a little business. The government might build a road or a bridge or invest, you know, in the, in the country. So if that money, if, if that money had boosted the economy of Haiti and the Haiti had grown at the average rate of countries around it in Latin America, like not the high rate, not the low rate, but the average rate, that money would add up to $115 billion today. Wow. The first and only country in the world where descendants of enslaved people paid reparations to their enslavers. Also worth pointing out, friends, I mean, look, this is not the normal course of things. When the Allies won World War I, Germany paid reparations. Normally, losers pay, winners don't pay. Uh, Haiti won and uh, nonetheless was uh, relegated to this situation of really it's permanent, well, let's not say permanent, I'm going to walk that back, but economic servitude. It's also a country that's bedeviled by an incredible amount of corruption. 
So how do you balance these two things? I mean, you know, I think it's all of a piece. I think that we, a lot of us know about a lot of the corrupt power structures under which uh, the Haitians have uh, labored for so many years, but we don't know as much about this debt. Uh, how have those two things worked together? Because in your reporting, you also talk about how a lot of this debt was not borne equally by all Haitians. Everybody wasn't picking up the bill. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you're so right. You know, what we found was, look, you raise a great point. And, and I've been reporting in Haiti since 2010. I got interested in the double debt and this issue because of the poverty and also the paucity of infrastructure that was so striking to me. I have lived in India. I have lived in Senegal. I've been in other countries, but I've never seen sort of personally this type of lack of infrastructure and, to be honest, the, the depths of poverty. So I got really interested in the, the double debt. But when I would ask people about, like, why is Haiti like this? Often the answer is corruption. And that there is a there is a history of predatory governments that people go into government not to serve their people, but to get rich because, you know, and that was that's a long standing history. And that is one explanation I've heard many times has been written up in many great books. And there's huge reporting on corruption there. So there, you know, Transparency International uh, last year gave Haiti like it was one of the most corrupt countries in the world tied with like North Korea. So um, so there's lots of truth to that. But I was really interested in in this other story that is not told, you know, and is not and has been researched. Like there's tons of Haitian scholars who've done amazing um, work on, on this issue. It's not like The New York Times discovered the double debt. What we did was add it up you know, and, and, and bring the story to a popular readership. So, you know, um, but this was another story I, we were just interested in that is not, not normally part of the framing, you know, of when people talk about Haiti and the misery, they don't talk about this and this. So we wanted to add this to this picture. How much is both? Who I don't know the answer to that question at all. And I don't even know how you would go about wanting to quantify both, but it is true what you said, that when we look at who paid this debt, it was not the rich that paid this debt. The Haitian government became quite dependent early, fairly early on. In early years, it tried a whole bunch of different ways. It had things like, it had um, individual wealth tax, actually, for the first few years to pay the debt, and that didn't work. It had stamp taxes. It um, is sold land. It did a whole bunch of different things. But then, at, you know, as time went on, it became more and more dependent on uh, export taxes on coffee. Coffee was the number one export. So, you know, when you think about um, coffee, I didn't know. I'm a city girl, so I don't know much about coffee. But I took a crash course there in Haiti. And it's it's a tree, you know, that is a perennial thing. And it, it plants. So it, these coffee plantations from the colonial era were up in a temperate forest, up in the mountains, and they seeded themselves. And so you have small-scale subsistence farmers who took over, you know, bits of land, very small acreages that are mixed. They have coffee, they have mango, they have, you know, um, uh, different kind manioc, a whole bunch of different kinds of fruits and vegetables. And this became the number one export 
commodity of the country. And very quickly, it was the exports on these coffee, you know, exports for these coffee farmers that was funding not just the, um, well, not just the government, but this this tax, I mean, this this independence debt, the double debt. And, um, and it's a hidden, I mean, export taxes are hidden, right? So the coffee farmers wouldn't necessarily know about them. They just get a, a, a they get a worse deal. They get a worse price um, on their coffee. So it was interesting to me, like when you go, coffee is still a crop that is grown uh, in certain areas of Haiti. I spent a lot of time or spent some time in a place called Don Don. It's where the first coffee plantations were, were cut into the mountainsides. Um, it was sort of where coffee began as an export commodity there. And it was amazing to me to see that, you know, it's incredibly beautiful. Like you say, like it's it's like a forest and mountainside. It has this huge fortress above it called the Citadel, which is the number one tourist site in Haiti and the number most important heritage building in the country. But people still live on uh, farm very small um, subsistence plots they live, you know, they they live, I would say, not that differently than their ancestors. They don't have electricity, the bulk of them, for, you know, the areas that I was in. They have running, the running water they get is from streams nearby. They don't have running water to their homes. They don't have sewage systems. They have outdoor latrines with pits. They They don't have electricity, right? So their kitchens are often in outdoor shelters that that are burning wood or coal. And so, you know, it it's really amazing from it was amazing for me to be there. They're very proud people. Um, if you've been to Haiti, people take huge pride in their presentation and the way they look. A lot of the people I interviewed hadn't gone to school because even though the constitution says you have a right to education, it's still mostly private in Haiti and they couldn't afford the fees. So, you know, these are the people whose ancestors paid this debt for generations and generations, and they don't have the fruits of what could have been. And the French certainly weren't the only ones to profit from this debt. When Haiti came under American military occupation, uh, the Americans, American banks started collecting their commissions on the Haitian government and the Haitian people too. In fact, you write, uh, this was actually, you know, I, I, again, I, the article is The Ransom. It's in the New York Times. Catherine Porter co-authored this uh, with other Times colleagues. I urge you to read it. Uh, it says a lot, one, about the fact that horrible situations aren't inevitable, right? That's why I'm so fascinated by Haiti. The whole notion of an enslaved people throwing off their enslavers says something about the fact that, you know, desperation uh need not be inevitable. However, you know, you, you write about how in the 40s, Haitian kids in their classrooms were being asked to donate their coins so they could help pay off their country's debt to international powers. They were paying the American debt back. By then, you know, by then, debt begets debt begets debt. But by then, the independence debt was over. But it had spurred this indebt, you know. So, so it had spurred a whole, like a, an indebtedness. So by the time they paid that debt, they had taken out another loan. 
And then, you know, what? but the Americans kind of came in and, and pushed their own loan in 1922, um, there, which was a disastrous loan that the Haitians did not want and said in Parliament they did not want. And it's a really layer, layered, fascinating history. But and it was paying off. That was sort of the residue of this long history of loans that they were paying off. And they had songs. In fact, like talking to some of my people I've met in Haiti, t- tell me about the song that they their grandfather or their fathers taught them that they, there was a song of, that was on the radio about let's pay the debt, like let's finish it off for, for, um, and yeah. And, and, you know, in 1947 was when that debt was finally paid. Although I will say the French came back, but, um, but, you know, at that same time, the thing that was really haunting is that the newly formed United Nations sent this delegation of investigators to Haiti to look at basically how the United States had left it after years of occupation, years of military occupation, and then years of financial occupation. And they found a country that was in such like the same dire straits as it had always been with little electricity, very little development, and also you know, one in uh, estimates of one in six kids going to school. So those kids who were paying off that debt, they were the lucky ones. They were going to school. The rest of them were not. And still to this day, I have to say, like for most kids you meet in, um, in Haiti, going to school is a big deal because their parents are really push school because it's, it's, it's still a rarity to get to go um, for very long. Debt begets debt. They had the, the Haitians had to borrow money to pay the first debt, and then they kept being subject to increasing loans by foreign powers um, that have consumed an incredible amount uh, of their domestic product. There's no real public school system in Haiti, is what you're saying, Catherine. So uh, the kids who do end up in school are a few of the lucky ones. Catherine, before you go, what do you see as the future for Haiti? How is it going to come out of this cycle of uh, debt and paying interest on debt? It's, It's a country that's incredibly rich and natural resources. And there is a community there that I know is ready to take its country forward. How does that happen? What is the next step for Haiti? How does it get out of this mire? As a journalist, as a watcher, I I, I do not know. I do know, though, that um, there is a really engaged group of, I mean, Haiti is a very difficult place right now. It's very dangerous. Kidnappings are huge. There's a, a big group of warring gangs that have made a lo- much of the capital very dangerous um, for locals. I think it's a, a very dark time for, ha- for Haitians, but yet there, there are this, ver- this really dedicated group of democracy, anti-corruption activists who have been working um, to try and draft uh, a plan for a future in Haiti. And we don't know if they'll be successful and what it will look like, but I still take huge hope because when you talk to these people, they're um, so passionate and engaged. Um, and whatever happens to Haiti, like whatever happens in the future will be decided by its own people. Like that's that's mm-hmm. for me the most, you know, I'm not Haitian. I'm just a watcher. I, I get to drop in and drop out. Um, I'm an outsider. But I do see a hugely committed, very bright, very active 
civil society. Um, and that gives me a lot of hope for um, the future there. Uh, I'm not Haitian either. Um, I'm only not even as close a watcher uh, as you. I'd say I'm an interested observer and admirer um, as someone who's the descendant of enslaved people. I'm an admirer of what they did. And I continue to admire the country and um, I will do whatever I can from my little vantage point to cheer for the people who are trying to make things right. And in the meantime, uh, Catherine, thank you for your brilliant reporting because you know, uh, this piece, The Ransom, and again, folks, New York Times, you must read it. It does such a great job, not just of laying out what the current problem is, and you really dug into the question of these numbers, uh, which governments have been so coy about, but you also really told the story of Haiti and put it in context uh, so people understand how that country got there. So, uh, thank you. Thank you for the story. Thank you for being here. And I hope uh, that at some point you'll have some great news to report about what's happening in the country and you'll come back. <laughs> thank you so much for having me and thank you for your interest. Thanks, Catherine. <laughs>